This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, what did it take for Egyptians to build the pyramids? Dr. Bob Bianchi has been an Egyptologist for almost 50 years. He gets into some of the uh, Egyptians' most incredible achievements in architecture, language, and the one thing they were able to do that no other ancient civilization could do. Gangnam Style, the novelty song, has turned 10 years old. That's hard to believe. And so what other songs get stuck in your head? It's coming up on the podcast. Plus, Steve Stebbing gets into the most anticipated movies of the week. What the hell should we watch this weekend? Including Nope, a thriller, plus a great debate on character development, on Breaking Bad, among many other things on the Shift Daily Podcast. Please like it. Pass it on to your friends, too, because they're going to love it as well. Ryan O'Donnell was browsing through, you know, internet articles and just sort of picking through the internet and he found something unbelievably cool. It is so far out of my lane. I have no idea what it is. And um, this is Dr. Bob Bianchi. Uh, He's a critical art historian. He's an author. He's a TV personality and he joins us here on The Shift. Uh, Bob, thanks for being here. First of all, I appreciate that. My pleasure. Good evening, everybody. Hello, everybody. Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's interesting. Um, you have this this article, a refreshing look at Egypt's ancient pyramids, and it, you know, it it brought up all of the the history uh, inspiration. It brought up the mystical Bob. It brought up all of the things to to maybe ask you, what is it about Egyptology and all of this um, in today's world? Because I think that most of us in our heads have the storyline of the King Tut from black and white film from so long ago. Yeah, I guess um, Egypt is always fascinating. I think if you did a um, survey of um, loan exhibitions internationally in the last five years, um, Egyptian themed exhibitions are going to be in your top five, maybe your top three. Mm -hmm. The fascination that the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans had, it fascinated everybody in the Italian Renaissance. Um, there was Egyptomania in the 19th century, especially during the Industrial Revolution. Tut kind of like added fuel to the fire. And um, we're moving right along right now with uh, numerous exhibitions of ancient Egypt. Uh, one is going to open in San Francisco on Ramses II uh, this coming August, not too far away from now. And so that. I think it's, it's always been something that's captivated the, the imagination of just about everyone. Well, it's inspired an awful lot of work for you. So um, what's, I mean, you've been there, you've seen it. Can you destri- describe, is there a feeling that maybe it's the first time, maybe it's because you've seen it more than once, you know, whether it's pyramids and thinks and, and sphinx, excuse me, and, and all those things that, is there a feeling that you get when you see it that, that you just kind of go, oh, it's powerful. There it is. What is it yeah, for well, you? I, I, no, I think that I've been there forever, beginning in the 1970s, I guess. And uh, every time I visit, even if I go back to the same site, I always see something I never saw before or I overlooked looking at before. So for me, uh, it's not a boring, it's not a boring trip. I really, really look forward to every trip I take every time I go back because there's always something new for me to see and look at and examine and study. Um, it's just, it's just archaeologically overwhelming I bet. With, the, with the number of monuments, the number of inscriptions, the number of images, 
And it's very, very hard to digest all of that at any one time. So bits and pieces as I go back and forth. I I got, I kind of got the feeling when you, when you described that to me, (laughs) what came to me was the Grand Canyon. And so when you walk to the Grand Canyon, you have this big, broad look of like, wow, look at the size of this thing. And then the feeling that came to me when you described going back to Egypt and seeing all these old things was exactly the opposite of that. It was like this super present narrowing of your view down to see um, just some of the finer details and an and, and absolute presence to what's going on. Is that what it's like? Is it anything like that where you start to look at these things and you become like time stops? You're just... I mean, literally, I, yeah, time stops I, I based on what I you're seeing. Time stops, and I think that it's the old saying, isn't it? You can't see the forest for the trees because there's just so many trees. Right. Um, so when you visit a monument or I visit a monument, uh, I try to look as careful as I can at every detail. Um, just to give you an example, um, the temples in Upper Egypt that were built during the Ptolemaic and Roman period has been estimated uh, that there might be something like 50,000 pages of texts if you were to lay it out end by end. Really, eh? And so um, in our experience, how long is it going to take you to read 50,000 pages of anything? Uh, it's <laughs> so, a long podcast, isn't it? Uh, yeah, so going back <laughs> and looking and relooking, I mean, you're always going to find something you never saw the first time around. What do we as, I think, the general public... Most of us have not been there. We haven't seen these, you know, the magnitude of some of these structures, uh, the artwork, the scripts. Um, what do we misunderstand? Because we have a very Hollywood Indiana Jones notion about these things. So what do you need to tell us to, to, to maybe reground us a little bit out of Hollywood and more into the reality of this conversation? Well, I, all right. I think that what, um, to be able to put this into context, um, the last inscriptions were written on the island of Philae <clears throat> at the very, very far south of Egypt. And when that last priest who wrote that died, the secrets of the hieroglyphs died with him. And the knowledge of ancient Egypt was perpetuated in the West because Greek authors, Latin authors wrote about it. And many of the Greek and Roman authors had a bad understanding of what Egypt was all about. And so when that man died, the knowledge of Egypt was imparted by Greek and Roman authors who misunderstood the culture. And that gave rise to this kind of spiritualism or this kind of mysticism uh, that Egypt is a land of mystery, a land of intrigue, the whole nine yards. And that started, say, in the fifth century and continued. So that in the 1820s, when Champollion translated the hieroglyphs, nobody believed them because Champollion was reading an inscription, for example. He said a thousand bread, a thousand beer, a thousand oxen, a thousand steaks for the soul of the deceased. And his contemporaries looked at us and said, you've got to be a madman. We're coming from the tradition that these hieroglyphs are like micro dots that are encapsulating human knowledge. And our perception is you look at the hieroglyph, it expands and we learn the secrets of the universe. Now you're telling me 
that these signs say a thousand loaves of bread, a thousand jugs of beer, a thousand eggs. You got to be kidding me. Yeah. And you have to understand that Champollion only translated in 1820. So we're looking at 200 years of scientific investigations of Egypt. The symbolists have been around for more than 2,000 years. Yeah, okay. So, so, so when you're an average man on the street, woman on the street, whatever, and you are introduced to Egypt, the default position is it's the land of magic, the land of mystery, the, man, the land of the unknown. Yeah. Uh, and that's what we're that as an Egyptologist, I'm fighting against that every day because every day. That, that prejudice is so in in culcate in the West. Well, it is and a you, lot more. Watch watch any kind of scientific uh, any science fiction movie yeah, that well, have allusions back to Egypt, and that gets reinforced. Well, it does. It totally does. And I and it, and it is way it's way more entertaining, Doctor Bob, to uh, to to say that. By the way, this is the path to the aliens versus a grocery list. Um, yeah, well, and- that may be. But when you when you when you think about it, and this is what really drives me crazy here, um, the pyramids are such a as an example. Okay, they're just monumental. You look at the size of these stones, and you go, "Oh my goodness." So the default is, well, aliens made it. And that's kind of like easy because they've got supernatural powers. They've got supernatural power. But now just stand in front of the pyramid, the Great Pyramid. Look at those stones and then say to yourself, human beings like you and me moved those stones. Yeah. How did those human beings do it? And once you put Egyptology on this personal level, then the mind boggles because I say, man, I can't even move bricks to build a patio today. And these guys were doing it. So once you once you deny aliens and once you entertain the possibility that these were made by people just like you and me. Then the mystery is really, wow, yeah. I have to bend down, take my hat off and really praise these people. Yeah. So the, the, the truth is stranger and more wonderful than the fiction. Well, I, tru- I, I get that. I feel that it, it's so incredibly powerful um, when you put it into the lap of another human being and you say that I can't even imagine what it's like to move one of those things. In fact, I'll put it directly into context to my house today. I can't seem to figure out how to get my front doorknob to stay on. Like something's stripped, something's stripped inside. Like the, the, the nuts are stripped and I, I can't figure out how to do it. And so that's a doorknob. These people were moving, you know, bricks that are as big as trucks. Right. Um, and, and moving them very long distances and then lifting them up. So the engineering behind what they were doing with leverage, balance, counterbalance, and all those things, and I'm sitting here today, I can't figure out how to get the cap on the doorknob. So yeah, yeah. that does put it in context, doesn't it? Yeah, and, and this idea that we lose technology, okay? Um, let's, take, uh, let's take a high school student, a grammar school student today in any school. Um, all right, let's give that child a slide ruler. Let's give that child a fountain pen. Uh-huh. Uh, let's give that child a manual typewriter. 
Do you think that they know how to use a slide rule? No, they've got a calculator. Do you think they can fill a fountain pen? We've never done that before. Um, do you think they can change a ribbon and kind of like understand how a typewriter works? So just in our lifetime, we have seen such an, a revolution of daily life objects that there are people that are alive today that cannot use the devices that I used right. because they're obsolete. And, and in the history of ancient Egypt, people forget the last priest died, all of that know-how died with him. Right. And we're stuck now with a void, just like I can't know, I don't know how to use a slide rule because nobody ever taught me. Well, and, and doesn't that create that, that the timeline is what sticks with me the most. How long did it take they figured to build the pyramids? The, the traditional estimate is 20 years with about uh, 10,000 workmen in rotation. So, okay, so uh, it's, it's an entire gener It's a, basically a generation. Yes. And to, to use your example of the slide rule is that by the time they started the pyramids and by the time they ended the pyramid, then that's an entire generation. And the technology was probably drastically different of how they moved and leveraged and and everything, it's reasonable to assume that even the technology and how they did it changed in yes, their lifetime. Yeah, and you can look um, and, and to understand the difference um, and to just stand in awe. My favorite monument from this period is the Step Pyramid of Zozer at Saqqara, Dynasty Three. Um, and when you stand in front of that monument, you just have to like pull your hair out because up to that time, the Egyptians were building in baked brick. So you got Nile mud, uh, you put it in a mold, you made a brick out of it, and then you built your structure from brick. The step pyramid was one of the first monuments in which they started to use stone instead of mud brick. And when you look at the step pyramid, they actually went to the quarry and cut stones to be the shape and size of a brick and then built this thing with brick-shaped stones. <laughs> and you have to stand and say, how long did it take them to cut the stone into these little brick-shaped and put them up? Yeah, just one. All right, and so you say you have to sit and say the the man hours, the people hours to do yeah. that is absolutely extraordinary. And when I stand in front of that monument and I look and I say anyone who wants to say that these monuments were erected by aliens from outer space, those people deny deny the capability of human beings who put their mind to a task and master it. Mm -hmm. and, and, and you denigrate the human race yeah. and human beings by saying we're incompetent and incapable of doing that. So aliens had to do it for us. Right. And I think that is completely anti-human being. But it, uh, you're right. It completely diminishes the, the accomplishments of all those people. Okay, so I, I like to put it into context today. I can't imagine, like you talk about cutting one, going to the quarry and cutting a, cutting one brick. Yeah. Like 
if you and I did that today and I'm like, hey, Bob, why don't you come over? I'm going to build a patio because you used patio as an example earlier. And we sit outside and we've got a hammer and a chisel, which is probably not very sharp comparatively to what we know as sharp. And, uh, and then we're pounding away, trying to chip away and build our bricks. And I can only like by lunchtime, <laughs> we would probably need a week off. And right. And then we'd probably have a beer at lunch and then we would want to have dinner and our backs would be sore. Our hands are probably bleeding from holding the handle and just the basics of it. It makes my arms hurt just to think about it. And then not only that, it was day after day, brick after brick, the the tenacity of those people. um, It does get lost when we, you know, when we just kind of toss it away and diminish it. I feel that. I really feel that. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. And I think that's that's one of the fascinations about ancient Egypt, how they were able to build these monumental structures yeah. using very, very simple tools as just normal human beings. Well, inspire them to do it. That's another thing. I mean, there's, there's, I'm assuming there was probably, you know, with the king or the leader or whatever the proper term was at the time, um, you still had to inspire the people to do it. Or right, or scare them to do it. I suppose if you want to be pragmatic about it, but they st- you still had to inspire them to get the job done every day, and so there's that part of it that gets tossed in there as well. Um, so yeah, true. But yeah. Um, we know now from recent papyri that have been found near the Red Sea and in a certain amount of caves that we had people, and it was a job. I mean, yeah. they, they got paid to do it, yeah. and we also we also have to get a different mindset. <clears throat> They're not looking at a for day work week uh, or a 35 hour work week or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, you started sun up, sun down and you worked until there were holidays, but there was not that coffee break stuff like that vacation. Yeah. They didn't get Labor so, Day back yeah. then. <clears throat> so I think that we have to, we have to, we have to also reconsider what the mindset was in terms of the labor force mm-hmm. um, that we, if we try to, impose our understanding of progressive labor work force on that it maybe does it's the it's the wrong model because they weren't following that dr bob uh, bianchi now you are an egyptologist you all love all things egypt and i really wanted to ask you the most difficult question i could possibly think of to ask you about your experience of this and i this is i think it's unfair because i think they're all it's like asking you which one's your favorite child but When you go there and uh, you've shared your favorite monument, but which aspect of it? Is it the magnitude of the stones? Is it the carvings of the stories? Is it the durability uh, of it and uh, withstanding erosion so incredibly well over the years? Is it the history of the Nile River and how it was moved over time and all of those things that that changed just in the history of, of uh, you know, uh, of the ground and the land? Which is your favorite child? Which one is truly your love affair of all of the pieces of your study in Egypt? Uh, yes, that's a really hard question. I think my, <laughs> fasc- my, my fascination is with the hieroglyphs. And the reason for that is hieroglyphs are pictures of things in the real world. And there are many more abstract concepts than there are things in the real world from a philosophical point of view. Yeah. So let's just take the Egyptian fixation, if you will, on resurrection, the, the mummies and death. That's everybody, everybody more or less associates that with Egypt. Yep. And so um, 
we're dealing with a very, very abstract concept, uh, resurrection or rebirth in the hereafter. And you have to understand that the Egyptians are using pictures. Now, there's no one picture that can explain resurrection or rebirth. Right. The magical. Okay. So the Egyptians are very, very clever about this because they go up to somebody and they say, let's make believe we're one of these theologians and we're trying to explain resurrection to an illiterate population because most of the population was illiterate. And we can only use pictures because that's what our writing system is based on. So the conversation goes like this. Do you see the sun? Oh, yeah, I can see the sun. Well, it rises every morning, and then it sets at night and disappears, and then it rises the next day, out of kind of like out of nowhere. Um, you see the Nile River? Every year in August, that Nile River floods and covers the land with silt. Do you see the moon? The moon goes through its monthly phases from a full moon to a sickle, new moon, old moon. Look at cattle. We have generations. Look at human beings. A woman gets pregnant after a certain period of time, someone is born. So the Egyptians are using all of these visual metaphors that are cyclic and repeating as what I call in other words. I don't get the concept of rebirth after death. Well, do you get the concept of the sun? Do you get the concept of the moon? Do you get the concept of the Nile flood? Do you get the concept of the annuals in the floral kingdom? Do you get the, in other words, of gestation period for animals and human beings? And I think one of the most amazing things in my mind about the ancient Egyptians is they were able to articulate the most profound abstract concepts using visual terms to articulate what they're talking about. And I think that's just as a mental gymnastics that no other ancient civilization was able to achieve. And if you read, if you read, especially the Ptolemaic and Roman period temple texts about just how profound these religious concepts are, you just have to stand there and say, huh, these people had to be some of the smartest people I've ever seen because of the way they can explain profound philological concepts using a visual vocabulary. And That's amazing. If I can rewind you back in time, Dr. Bob, to when you went there in the beginning, very first time, young man. I was uh, in the 1970s, I believe. Okay. Um, and um, <clears throat> I was asked to, um, uh, I was a graduate student at the time. 20s? Uh, Were you in your 20s-ish? Yeah, I was working as an intern at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And um, yeah. the temples of Abu Simbel had been um, moved and they were being opened then for the first time. And so the there was a group of people who wanted to go to Egypt. Um, the highlight of the tour was going to be to see the temples at Abu Simbel. And I was uh, hired to be the lecturer to explain what they were looking at. 
And for me, it was very, very exciting because it's the first time I'd ever been to Egypt in my life. Mm-hmm. And so um, yeah, that that was really great. And I spent a lot of time trying to prepare lectures of the monuments we were going to see. It was a bit of a challenge because I hadn't seen these monuments before. I mean, I knew them from slides and from photographs, but I hadn't been in front of them. Uh, so uh, being able to stand in front of a temple and then talk to the people about it uh, without kind of like, just saying, oh my goodness, wait, <laughs> the electric can wait. I've got to, I got to take this picture of that. Uh, that was, that was the real kind of like internal struggle that I had. Yeah, but doing my job by presenting what I'm looking at to the audience, but then feeling somehow personally cheated that I couldn't stop and admire it or take the pictures that I wanted to take. Um, but over time, I've, uh, I've been there so often I can make up for that. Deficiency. That's good. <laughs> the person you are today, Bob, um, your um, existential study, clearly, um, belief systems, all of those things that sort of get curated over the course of time. Is it safe to say that the biggest gift that um, that Egypt has given you is your understanding of Bob? Uh, well... That's a that's a difficult question because it, it it interfaces with who I am as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, I was born into a, a Greek Italian American family. Um, my maternal grandparents um, from Greece, uh, but also family in Egypt, and so my grandfather was able to immigrate to the United States um, because he had family in Alexandria, and he went from Greece to Alexandria where he stayed with them in order to earn enough money to book passage to come by a boat to the United States. So, uh, so part of me um, has this link to my grandfather and uh, his Alexandria experience. And so I think that um, from my personal experience, um, studying Alexandria, studying Egypt is kind of like a part of me. I feel that's kind of like um, hardwired in my genes Mm-hmm. And um, that experience has, I think, um, moved me in my writing and my in my professional life because I've written a great deal about Greek and Egyptian relationships. I've written a great deal about Greek um, and Roman and Egyptian relationships. So this kind of intercultural exchange between Greece and Egypt, between Rome and Egypt, is something that fascinates me. Uh, but I think it's part of my culture because I see um, my Greek family having their roots in Alexandria, Egypt, and I and I see my Italian family with its roots in Italy, with its long, long Roman tradition of Egyptomania. And so I feel kind of like privileged that I've been able to study this and that I can infuse my writing with what I feel is my intense interest in what my family background may have been a long time ago. Is there an element of home for you there? Is that, excuse me again? Is there an element of home for you there? Uh, I feel comfortable in Egypt and Greece and Italy. Um, very much at home, uh, maybe yeah. more so than I do with the States. That's beautiful. I love that. I, and the reason why I ask is selfishly, um, I went to Ireland for the first time um, just last month. And my family roots are uh, English Normans into England, into Ireland. And, um, and I, it was a very strange experience for me to be there 
and have it be all new to my eyes, but really not very new in my heart and um, felt really comfortable and it was a neat experience. That's why that's why you inspired me to ask that yeah, question. Yeah, because that, yeah, I think that I think that's true. And I think that um, uh, as, as I as we look at the, the tools that are available to us today, um, I've got family all over the world. I've got family in America. I've got family in Canada. I've got family in the UK. I've got family in um, Switzerland, Italy, Greece, um, Germany. Uh, and this kind of like, it just kind of like opens up a whole new window uh, that, um, you know, uh, broadens one's horizons and, and finds out that you're really part of a larger, larger community. And I think that opens up a, a lot of windows to be able to uh, appreciate how you are uh, in this world. And I feel very, very, I feel very, very privileged yeah. that I can have such an international family. And we get together with reunions uh, where we speak different languages and we're all kind of like together. And I think that's a kind of a cosmopolitan aspect of my personal life yeah. that, I, that I highly, highly value. Yeah, it sounds like home to me. Um, that's really cool. Uh, uh, well, you've left me inspired, Dr. Bob. Uh, Dr. Bob Bianchi, um, Egyptologist, was so much here. I feel like we could, in fact, I invite you to to join us for more conversations about this stuff because there is so much more that we can we can talk about. I do want to acknowledge your passion. I want to acknowledge um, the depth of expression just in, in, in your experience of this. And that has created... Um, I thoroughly enjoyed sharing this time with you, and I'm really grateful that you you were here today. Thank you. Well, you're more than welcome. Thank you for inviting me, and I'll take you up on that invitation. You want to have a chat again? Give me a holler if our schedules can arrange. We'll be right here chatting with you again. Appreciate that. This is the Shift Podcast. What is the uh, worst of the novelty songs from your life? Okay, um, maybe it's the best. I mean, the earworms, the one-hit wonders, I mean, some of them are really great, but some of them are also absolutely dreadful and, frankly, kind of embarrassing. Now, this one that's celebrating its 10th birthday, I don't think is embarrassing, but I do not think it stands the test of time like others on this program might think. But a very, very special song uh, celebrated a birthday, and why not? Um you know, uh, share it with you here a little bit. Tenth birthday to Psy and Gangnam Style. On July 15, 2012, the South Korean singer and rapper Psy broke onto the global music scene. He was already very famous in South Korea. He sported a bright blue tuxedo, iconic dance, and unforgettable beat. Uh, there's a really great story about the history of this guy, because uh, the history of him as a person is really cool, actually. He was inspired by a concert at Wembley Stadium with Queen, and Bohemian Rhapsody made him want to get into the music scene. So, like, it's a cool story. Uh, my acknowledgement to Alpha Medi, he is a YouTube creator, created a great video summarizing the impact of this song. So when this track was released, it went to the top of the South Korean music charts immediately, but that wasn't surprising at all. The musician behind the song was South Korean rapper Psy, whose real name is Jae Sang Park. He had been a prominent chart-topping musician within his native country 
For well over a decade, so huge successful songs were not new to him. But success in South Korea was all they expected. There had already been attempts at Korean music crossing over into the US with K-pop groups like Girls' Generation and Wonder Girls. Marketing executives were doing everything they could to grow K-pop in the United States. They tried making English language songs and collaborating with Nickelodeon, but it wasn't catching on. And then, through sheer word of mouth, Gangnam Style starts to go viral. Psy was in many ways the opposite of these extremely polished girl groups. He proved that you didn't need to be young, pretty, and skinny to have an Asian song succeed worldwide. Some of the initial heavyweights that helped push the music video in the States were people like T-Pain and Britney Spears. And then pretty soon, it caught on like wildfire. People were attracted to this extremely catchy song, and even more so, the silly, bold, and in-your-face music video. The world was due for a great new learn-it-yourself dance craze. It was a perfect storm to make one memorable, explosive, viral video. We saw tutorials of how to do the dances in the video, Minecraft parodies, guest appearances on daytime TV, bride and groom first dances at weddings, tennis matches, football games, and so much more. Within the same year that it was uploaded, it became the most viewed YouTube video of all time, the first YouTube video to hit 1 billion views, and two years later, it was the first video to hit 2 billion views as well. So, um, Psy, turns out, was from the rich neighborhood of Gangnam, where he's from. His dad was an executive, his mom owned some restaurants in around Gangnam and that city. But he really set in motion a change for music, and that's what happens with these with these folks, right? They come up with these real novelty songs, and it just changes music. BTS is a South Korean boy band, if you will. Uh, they basically thank Psy for, you know, globalizing K-pop, Korean pop. And they openly say, we wouldn't be here if it weren't for that guy. Now, the thing about Gangnam Style, it's goofy, it's silly, it was super fun, Ryan O'Donnell thinks it stands the test of time today. Absolutely. I don't agree. Hello. Yeah. Am I here? There we go. Yeah, I absolutely think it's amazing. I think it's I, it, it's a it's not a boring song. It's impossible to be bored while listening to Gangnam Style. You know, it's just you want to dance, you want to get moving. It takes you back in time to when things are just so simple in 2012. We were all worried the world was ending because of an ancient Mayan prophecy, not you know, actual world events. It was a different time, man. And Gang of Style was just this fun, silly song. And the music video, man, it's kind of like, uh, reminds me of like a Britney Spears song or, uh, you know, Thriller. It's just, you can't have one without the other. They go hand in hand. And I, since the Gang of Style, I can't really think of a music video that had such a massive impact on the industry. Like that was the most recent one in my mind, at least. So with those two things in mind, I think Gangnam Style will stand the test of time with a niche. It's not the most accessible song ever made. Uh, and that hasn't, that has changed over time, but uh, it will be in my library of music till the day I die. Like, absolutely. Okay. So some of the other novelty songs that are out there, there's some good ones that I would, you know, go back to in a heartbeat. And then there's other ones where it's like, man, I'm good. Um, so there's some throwbacks, 877-399-9898. What are your novelty songs that impacted you? Uh, you can let us know if they're good or bad. And there's this, this one here comes up and it's, uh, in the town right. 
This got texted in as a novelty song. Oh. Uh, this is the Beatles, man. If you could say the Beatles are novelty. This is a novelty song. I can't stand this song. You think it is novelty? Yeah. It's just, you know. Like, it's just kind of like a anthem, laid back anthem song. I would say within their discography, yes, it's a little bit of a novelty. Yeah, I would agree. A what? A what? So, okay, you know, I guess that that, that goes. Now, there are, I'm going to ask for your forgiveness now because uh, there are some songs here that you're probably not going to be happy that we've played um, because they are that bad. And this one was texted in. Um, with no name attached to it, probably because they didn't want to uh, <laughs> get found out about it. But of all of the novelty songs, oh, God, I'm so sorry to do this to you. Well... Well, there, we talk about Gangnam Style. This is now the most viewed YouTube video. I'm almost certain. No. Okay, so can't be. Uh, Gangnam, Gangnam Style has 4 billion views. <gasps> Baby Shark has 10 billion views. I think the other one, Despacito, no. 10 billion views, Baby Shark. Despacito has just under 8 billion. And uh, See You Again is the other one. See you again has 5.5 billion. So yeah, there you go. Wow. Baby Shark is not only go. the most Baby Shark is it. It is that is it. Oh my goodness. The worst novelty songs of all time 8773999898. I don't remember if this was the 80s or the 90s. I just based on I'm thinking it's the 90s, but this is another one that is going to I'm really sorry about it. Now, off the beginning, you're going to be like, what is this, Shane? I don't know what it is. But then you're going to hear it, and you're going to go, oh, God. Rico. Wait. Hold on. Hasn't, hasn't clicked Suave. yet. Rico. All right, so that's uh, Rico Suave by Gerardo. And you want to know the worst part about that song? What's the worst it's part? It's almost song? five minutes long. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, that's uh, time. That's incredible. Okay. 877-399-9898. Um, since we did that one, another text um, comes in. Uh, and this is this song changed my view of my parents way back in the day. I am too sexy for my love. <laughs> too sexy for my love. Love's going. Right, said Fred. Yeah. Okay, so there was a work party that my parents went to, and I think it was the first time I ever saw my parents drunk. Is that they came home from a party, and I was probably in high school, I think, at the time. And um, and my. Uh, yeah, my parents came home from the work party, and they uh, were sharing their stories about how they were cutting a rug and giving her on the dance floor to write said, Fred, I'm too sexy. And I was like, oh, God, my parents, they're oh. actual humans. <laughs> oh. 
Okay, 877-399-9898. What is the uh, worst novelty song uh, of your world? Okay, let's go to Ken here's in Kamloops. Hey, Ken, what is the worst novelty song in your world? The Dingaling song. My mom uh, by, who's that by? My, what? Oh, uh, by Chuck Berry. Thanks very much for that, um, yeah, Ken. Yeah. My Dingaling. Yeah, we've got uh, we've got Sid and Chilliwack also sends that one in too. Um, when I was a little bitty boy, my grandmother bought me a cute little toy. <laughs> Silver bells hanging on. I wanna play with my Dingaling. <laughs> oh, Chuck Berry. Chuck, come That's on, man. Chuck God. Berry. That's, that's a stretch. Uh, oh, coconut. I can't believe coconut? you said I guess that's a... Oh, man, I guess so. Uh, the novelty song. I love this song, though. I, it's kind of psychedelic Sunday song that we play every now and then. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. My dad would say this all the time. Every time he made a drink. <laughs> that's so good. That's and that's okay. Awesome. I love that. See, your dad's cool. Yeah. One way to put it. Um, well, your dad also liked. Uh, I like to move it, move it. Yes, yes, he did. Um, okay, so let's fast forward here a little bit in time for our younger listeners and some of the songs that um that came out that were also very terrible. Okay, let's say no check. This is probably 2003. Oh, that's so bad. Okay. Um, what are some other ones? Uh, milkshake comes uh, to mind for me. Oh, also... Um, let's fast forward a little bit. I didn't think this was a, uh, maybe you might've mentioned this one, Ryan, but I didn't think this was a novelty song at all. It was great. Uh, I think it's novelty and what it's rapping about, but that's kind of Macklemore's whole shtick. And yes, I love this song. It's great. It's groovy. It's fun. Yeah. Really? I never really thought of it as a novelty song. It's no Rico Suave, I can tell you that much. I'm gonna pop some bags, only got $20 in my pocket. I'm looking for a color, this is King Muscle. There is hard stop there. You were worried there for a second, were you? Yes, I was. Nah, I got you. Uh, okay, what are the best and the worst earworm songs with your text messages? 877-399-9898. Y'all are texting so fast, you're not putting your names on here. This one, though, is from... <laughs> um, nope, it's not by from Carl, because that's the artist. I mean, can you go wrong with Carl Douglas? Yeah. This goes on for a little bit. Everybody was There we go. There's another text from Toronto just came in for this very song while we're playing it. So that's cool. See, so I don't know. I it's what do you do? 877-399-9898. What are your um what are your best or worst um songs? Oh, um this one came in. Oh man, you're gonna you hate me for this one too. A couple of times. Oh, you can tell you bring water full of 
I haven't heard this in a long time, man, Billy Ray. Yeah. You can tell my arms go back into the farm. That's you can tell my But it had a dance to it, right? It did. Like Cadillac Ranch. Cadillac Ranch. Add that to the list. Just don't think. Cadillac Ranch to the list. Cadillac. Uh, okay. It's the same song. It's, it's a good old line dance. Song. Yeah. That's good. Stop though. But if you're gonna do that though, then you're gonna get into. If you're gonna call this like, I think this isn't a novelty song. It's just a song that became so popular for so many generations. If you're gonna do that, you've got to do Eddie Rabbit. Well, I love night. See, that's just a great song. I love to hear the thunder. I think it's a great song that became so popular for so many generations that it just You know what makes me feel good. Oh, that's so good. Hey, okay? we should do this more often. Well, I love I love it. It. Right? Okay, so then if we're gonna do that, then we have this one, which I would say is a novelty song. Um, since we're on the flare of the country stuff. We might as well toss this one out there because every single country party does this. Right? Oh, yeah, this is definitely It's a good song, though. <laughs> it's big and red, save a horse, ride a cowboy. We don't recognize it. Jim the Camera Guy says the Monster Mash. Yep. Absolutely that. I gotta let it finish now so we can hear it. Alright, so let's uh, change this into the uh, the 90s dance realm. Oh no. I'm a scat man. Right? Scatman John? This is a meme now. This is dance music was fast back then, man. It was the same era of other fast dance songs like this one. Right? See, it's a fine line. Rhythm of the night. Right? It's a, it, is a, it, is a, it is a fine line between um, what is just a really great sort of one-hit wonder song versus... Uh, a novelty. This is the rhythm of the night. I know you just wanted to hear that because this fits. Okay, eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. Let's go to Nancy, who's in uh, Hamilton. Hey there, Nance. What's going on? Hi. Good to hear from you. Um, no, I was just thinking of a really old song, The Good Brothers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember them. It's before you. No, started. I don't know this one. So we're going to take a little listen to it no, right you now. Won't. It's uh, the rabbit song, and it's about yeah. a guy who grew a plant, and the rabbit ate it. And <laughs> I don't think any other explanation is needed, but I think you should give it a listen on your own time, even if you don't on the radio. Yeah, we'll do it now. We'll do a little bit here now, here, Nancy. Yeah. And they stood five feet tall, and their color was There's a rabbit running around. He's jumping up and down. He's hopping. I love down. it. And then he's got it's two fun. bloodshot eyes, and he doesn't realize that to get him high, I could have gone to jail. 
That's very good. I love the implication of what you're saying there, Nancy. Thanks for the phone call. You have a great morning, okay? Yeah, before Prohibition was over. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, great. Take awesome. Take care, buddy. Nancy's in Hamilton right there, 877-399-9898. Okay, we've got to get, we've got my ding-a-ling, um, Turtle Creek. Uh, what else we got here? Um, Shut up, your face is here, too. Um, Kung Fu Fighting, which we got to. Oh, Ryan. What is oh, no. There's an awful lot of you with the Chuck Berry and the dingling. Um, yeah. Cleaning up the list here, though. I mean, I think we got to do this. I know you're going to hate me. I get excited for this song. Ah, but it's Gayla Peavy. It's okay. I thought you were going to play came in on a text Joe. in my defense. Oh, no. I, we did that before. I'm like, Meh. I want a hippopotamus for Christmas. Right. I know, I know, it's July, but hey, it's like five months to Christmas already, so this is all right. We might as well toss it in there. Shane gets yeah. excited for Christmas. Eiffel 65, I'm blue. Um, Dan says, I remember that rabbit song. It's an awesome one. Thank you very much, Dan. We've got Disco Duck, The Streak. What about The Stroke? I don't know. I feel like that's a thing. Cotton Eye Joe. I want it that way. I'm yeah. a Barbie girl. That's Aaron and Abbotsford, um, the Barbie girl song, um, without a doubt. Now, Ryan, you were saying that this is not going to be part of the Barbie movie, hey? No, it's not. They, uh, Hasbro does not want anything to do with this song because this song kind of, like, you could argue, like, sexualizes the, the whole thing. So that was a whole lawsuit so. when the song came out. So they Yeah, it was. It yeah, there was all kinds of lawsuits. So I guess that's probably why they're not doing business today, hey? It's okay. Just wait for TikTok to get a hold of it, and they'll just do some edits with the song, and it's going to It'll almost also, happen on its own, right? looks really great, by the way. Like, the screenshots from filming it. This looks so? like it's actually going to be a really fun movie. You might not know this one. Um, I just think the name of it is pretty awesome. Uh, this was in probably 97. Came out. It was uh, the song is called Popcorn, which is you can hear it. But the, the group was called Hot Butter. And then it was covered by Crazy Frog. It was covered by Steve Aoki. Yeah. It was covered by the Muppets uh, and everything else. And this was a full on 12 inch record DJing in the bars. Except they remix and put a big beat behind it. Very annoying. <laughs> it is very annoying. That's why we're turning it off now, Rye. Um, Thank you. That's for sure. All right. 877-399-9898. Just in case you um, you didn't have that any of those earworms sticking in your ears when we uh, move along from this. Let's just do this uh, one more time. <laughs> Leo's dancing. Ryan's banging his head against the table. Yeah. All right. Best and worst novelty songs um, of all time. This one did come into, and we should probably get into at least a little bit for the sake of it. Oh, Leo. Uh. <laughs> Leo's dancing. This is... That was fun, though. I remember that. That's one of those ones where I don't think it stands the test of time, per se, but uh, people still, um, you know, still kind of like it. So what are the worst of the novelties? I don't know. There's a few. There's a few of them. What does the fox say comes on that list? Um, 
Don't Drop That Thun Thun by Fanatics. I, I found this song just in research. I don't know the song, but for the sake of having some fun here, um, I think there's a clean version of it. I really hope so, because don't uh, um, There it is. I was listening to it earlier. Like, this is actually a song. This is a real song. Someone yes. made money on this. Yes, they did. And it was very popular, actually, as a novelty song, of course. Come on now, help me out. This <laughs> is like Mr. Metal. Is that the only way they made it clean? It would appear so. Oh well, sorry, I can't. Yeah, they just literally edited out all the er- lyrics because <laughs> it's That's it's quite nasty. Outstanding. All right. Well, I was listening to the dirty one earlier. Um, then there's the Harlem Shake by Bauer. Classic. Comes on the list. Same era as Gangnam Style. Um, Sense of the Day it is. Uh, And I know that when uh, Drexy did the show, this was part of their Friday kickoff. I know, Ryan's. this is a generation thing. I remember when this came out, I was in high school, and they played it instead of the national anthem. This is terrible. Eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. What is your uh, what is your good or bad um, novelty songs? And Catherine is in Surrey. Hey, Cat. What is the uh, is it good or bad? First of all, this novelty song. Oh, right? I love it. I love it. I just right. thought of it. And I love it. It's Cop for the Wolfman. Got it. Oh, pretty making you happy is it oh you are <laughs> it's one of those um it is special though right like these songs what's the era for you in your life like when when did this hit you in your life what were you doing at the time i was having the best years of my life in the 80s right yeah 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 and it just sticks with you right and then that's how you remember it and that's and sunshine listen to the radio while I'm suntanning. <laughs> yeah. yeah, on the beach. I picture you driving yeah. like a, a Volkswagen uh, Beetle or a bus or something with the windows down. Sunglasses. Into the park. Yeah. yeah. I love it. I love it. Crew. Thank you. Thanks for the call. Okay, thanks, Excuse- Catherine. Clap for the Wolfman, of course, and guess who right there? This is the Shift Podcast. Steve Stebbing is here. It's time for What the Hell Should We Watch This Weekend? Hello, Steve. Hello, my friend. How are you? I'm good. Thank you very much. Um, It is the weekend. We are here. We're settled back. I finally started watching Breaking Bad. I realize I'm a little behind. Yeah. Then you got to get to the Better Call Saul then. like You have a long trek ahead of you, sir. Well, I was talking to Sylvain Charlebois. He's the food guy from Dalhousie. We were having a co- private conversation, and he said, "Yeah, I really started. I figured I'd, you know, get on this Breaking Bad trend." And I was like, "I'm pretty sure you're a few years late for that one." Yeah. And he's like, "I know, but it's I want. I'm, I'm determined to get caught up because everyone talks about it." And I was like, "I gotta confess, I've never really seen it too." I watched the first three <laughs> or four episodes, and it really mm-hmm. sucked. It really did, and I still don't find it to be that great. I'm on season two, episode two now. And I still really don't find it to be that great. It's very clumsy. You've got to get to Heisenberg. As soon as you get to Heisenberg, you're fine. You're fine. Well, he's Heisenberg now. 
Yeah, he's Heisenberg. Oh, no, now. he's not. Not fully yet. Sir. Okay. If you're in season two, no, sir, he is not fully Heisenberg. Any okay. Breaking Bad fan listening right now is agreeing with me and nodding their head and like, yes, that's true. But that doesn't make it a good show when everyone, because that's, that's what everyone kept saying was like, hey, just watch. You got to tough out the first four seasons and the fifth season gets really that's good. Like, that doesn't make it a good show. That means that it's got four crappy seasons. It's called it's called development. Development. Got development. For years. <laughs> what are we developing? Shane. Shane, you must have patience. patience I don't think I should have patience. Con. It's a show. I should turn it on and it should be good. I highly disagree. Well, highly, highly this disagree. shocks me that you would you would just be more <laughs> satisfied with the fact that you've invested at this point like ten hours of time. And it's like, just give it 20 hours, man. It'll feel good. Like, if, if you ever said that, if you're ever going for, like, a massage or on vacation, you're like, don't worry. The first 20 days of your vacation is going to suck. But after that, it's going to get really, you're going to like it there. I'm not a wham-bam. Thank you, man. I'm not. I'm not. <sighs> yeah, you know uh, what this is? This I'm this staying. Is, if we're going to go through that, I'm staying in this whole situation. This is more of a, by the way, all of the flags of the psycho girlfriend were there. All along, and not only did you date her and uh, propose to her, but then you married her and then couldn't figure out why it sucked because the relationship was terrible. All right, anyway, let's move along. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm determined to get to this good point. It's there. I'm t it's not coming easy. It's there. It's there. Jesse it's has to easy. develop as well because Jesse's a dirtbag for the first little bit. Like He's got to develop as a character too. Like The situations they go through have to affect their lives. They have to go through situations to get there because we he's have... a mild-mannered teacher, right? Yeah. yeah. He And then all of a sudden he gets immersed in the cartel. Like All these things have to happen uh -huh. for him to lose it. I get that. Mm-hmm. 20 hours. That's why it's they make series. Time. That's why they make series. That's why Shameless was 11 seasons long. Like, that's why <sighs> these shows go the length that they go. Like, if you want a two-season show, they're out there. You can, you, can get, you can get that quick satisfaction. But if you want something a little deeper than that, and a, like some, like you'll see why Brian Cranston was earning Emmy nominations like crazy every year. As his we character do. changes year by year. I don't know, man. I, just, I don't think that, that it's... Yeah, but Texas comes in. I watched half a season of Breaking Bad. Nope, is the text. Um, so, <laughs> I don't I, I think now. they've got to... I hear that. It's very clear. Um, <laughs> all right, let's get into what the hell should we watch this weekend. And considering that um, the text messages all agree that nope is uh, the way that Breaking Bad goes, it also is our first movie. Did you know that the very first assembly of photographs to create a motion picture was a two-second clip of a black man on a horse? And that man is my great-great-grandfather. Great. There's another great-grandfather. But that's why back at the Haywood Ranch, as the only black-owned horse trainers in Hollywood, we like to say since the moment pictures could move, yeah, skin in the game. Oh, baby. Steve, tell us about Nope. Oh, boy. This is such a fun movie. This is Jordan Peele's third film, uh, a guy that won an Academy Award for his first film, A Get Out. And uh, this is him doing some almost Spielbergian sci-fi. 
but basically it follows Daniel Kaluuya and uh, uh, um, Kiki Palmer's character, brother and sister, who run uh, Haywood Horse Ranch, which is uh, a former uh, Hollywood stable for movies, everything that's now on uh, the down days as the patriarch of the family has passed away. And uh, the horses are being sold off and everything. And then a mysterious presence uh, starts to uh, appear in the sky. And really, that's all the depth that I should go into on the story end of it. Because it's best to go into this one pretty much clean of any knowledge. Because it is just a movie that's completely unpredictable. And uh, constantly opens itself up to like mind-blowing plot twists and everything. And... I was all about this movie. The cast is absolutely perfect. Uh, it's shot beautifully. Um, it's the same guy that did Interstellar, uh, uh, Hoyt Hoytema. And I, I know I'm missing a, a middle name on that one. Uh, but uh, he's just him. This team of him and Jordan Peele has made something that I, I think is one of the best movies that you're going to see this year. SteveStepping.ca, by the way, if you want to check out Steve's blog. What the hell should we watch this weekend? Next on the list is The Gray Man. What do you know about the Sierra program? Reckless, mystery man you guys send in when you can't officially send anyone else. The Gray Man. Lloyd. We got an urgent locate and destroy. That could be fun. The man's got some street cred. But tell us about uh, about this. Yes. $200 million Netflix action film from the Russo brothers who are known for doing uh, Captain, uh, sorry, Captain America, The Winter Soldier, uh, basically the, the latest Avengers movies. Uh, and they've got Captain America, but he's the bad guy in this one because the good guy is Ryan Gosling. And we basically get kind of like assassin versus assassin, cat and mouse thriller in this one. Uh, big action, and uh, I- I'm excited uh, about it. It's kind of getting slammed uh, because uh, Anthony and Joe Russo have made some kind of inflammatory comments about uh, theater culture and everything. So it-, it does have a target on its back, but I-, I think it just looks like just a turn your brain off and watch the explosions go type movie. That's okay sometimes, too, as long Absolutely. as there's a bit of a story to it. Yeah. Uh, next on the list, what the hell should we watch this weekend? This is Guar. If you enjoy the music of Barry Manilow, Liberace, or the Bee Gees, then you're going to hate Guar. Their name is Guar. Guar, the band from hell. That band, Guar, has got to be the raunchiest, most rotten band. They are the worst. Basically, they're barbarian interplanetary warriors who play heavy metal music and shoot various bodily fluids all over the audience. And Steve loves them. Absolutely. I've seen Guar so many times. I had the privilege of seeing Guar uh, when the lead singer was Odorous Arungus, uh, a.k.a. Dave Brocky, like the originator who uh, sadly passed away a handful of years ago. Uh, but, I mean, one of the coolest uh, onstage shows I've seen in a long time. You're supposed to go in like a white T-shirt because you're going to get sprayed with blood and alien stuff. And it's just insane. The shows are insane. Uh, it, it From the outside, it looks absolutely ridiculous, but it's one of the most 
some of the most fun I've ever had at a concert in my life. And uh, I mean, this uh, them getting their flowers in this documentary is just a long time coming. It's sad that uh, that Dave wasn't alive to see uh, this film, but uh, yeah, it's on Shutter right now. And uh, if you love heavy metal like I do, and you know about Guar, you owe a service to watch this movie because uh, it really should be supported. What else should we watch this weekend with Steve Stebbin? Coming up on Sunday, Mark Kutzier is going to be here, animator, as referred to us by Shifthead Alex through family relationship, actually. He's from Hamilton, and he is the director, one of the directors of Paws of Fury, the legend of Hank. He also was an animator on The Lion King, among 40 other big-name uh, show. So we look forward to uh, sharing that story with you coming up on Sunday here. It's The Shift. In the meantime, what the hell should we watch this weekend with Steve Stebbing, including next on the list, The Day Music Died, the story of Don McLean's American Pie. This could quite possibly be the greatest song in music history. I love the melody. He takes you on a journey. Long, long time ago. It really is timeless. I can still remember how that music used to make. No one's ever written anything like it since. Well, there's no denying that song is unbelievable. How's the show? Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting documentary um, about arguably one of the greatest songs ever written. A song that I believe is eight minutes and seven seconds or something like that. Like it's a it's an epic of a of a song and, and a, just an incredible story told. Uh, and uh, I mean, did it all kind of birthed from uh, the death of Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper in that tragic plane crash, and Don McLean kind of having the impetus of of using that fueled with his own story to make this song that has been covered so many times and has such a deep connection to so many different musicians uh, like Garth Brooks who plays a major part in this documentary as well probably my favorite part of the whole thing uh, I will say that it does meander quite a bit like it doesn't have like kind of a correct flow to it and there's some interactions that Don McLean has with like uh, Richie Valens' sister and everything that felt so staged like that they'd already set up that these they'd already meet, met each other and then they're like oh well, let's act it out like you guys have met each other and that kind of bothered me and kind of took the wind out of the sails in the third act but uh i still i, I love music documentaries so uh, this one played into my heart really well all right uh what the hell should we watch this weekend that's for sure don't forget madonna that was controversy when she did her version of american pie uh next on the list and last one before we get to the v club is fire of love this is Katya, and this is Maurice. Tomorrow will be their last day. They will leave behind hundreds of hours of footage, thousands of photos. All right, tell us about Fire Loves You. Yeah, more documentaries here. Uh, this one's basically a love story at its core uh, about uh, Katya and Maurice Kraft, uh, who were uh, volcano scientists, very different people. Uh, Katya being very much more pragmatic and quiet, and, and Maurice being kind of the showman, uh, boisterous one. And the French media absolutely loved these two that would just kind of bounce across the world to different active volcanoes and get like 
so close to them. Like a lot of this documentary, because it relies on all of their footage that they shot over this time. It almost makes me uncomfortable how close that they are, and almost like toying with with these volcanic eruptions and everything that are so. It's just it's scary for me, but also like really fascinating to watch. Um, tragically, uh, a, a Japanese volcano did take both of their lives, and there is kind of footage of that. That's that's. I mean, there, there's so many points in this that I'm like, oh my god, they're going to die, and they they're just I don't know, they're just fearless. It, it's it's so breathtaking to see how how they act without abandon in front of like nature's most awe-inspiring explosions. All right, let's get right to it. The AV Club this week, we spun the uh, tiny wheel a week ago. You picked the movie. It landed on Nick Cage because, well, it's rigged. And um, and here we are, so let's get to it. Right? Let's do it. Let's bring out the tiny wheel and get into the Shift AV Club, my friends. Tiny wheel, tiny wheel, tiny wheel, tiny wheel. The tiny wheel actually does have movies. With an it's M. so cute, no one seems to mind. With an M, except this, it was actually with an N this week because Nicolas Cage was chosen by the Tiny Wheel. And together, we all picked Con Air to watch. Let's set the scene with the classic 90s trailer. What you looking at, punk? Nothing, I was just on your cage. But one wrong flight. Stewardess, what's the end flight movie today? <laughs> Can ruin your whole day. All right. So, yeah, uh, I love I'll start Cage. because you guys are going to I'll start because you guys are going to say okay. nice things about yeah. the movie. So I'll just get mine well, out of the way. Yeah, go ahead. Well, no, it's it is a thoroughly entertaining show that has yeah. uh, the plot consists of criminals on a plane with a lot of sort of unexplained reasons. And then it's mayhem. That's really the plot. And then um, aside from that, I've also never been to Vegas before. So I'm not a good sales pitch. Uh, I've never tried to land parallel runway to the strip like the movie does. So uh, I'm just going to say I'm glad you guys are such big fans of Nick Cage and hand it over to you. This movie is insane. This movie is essentially Die Hard 2, except instead of taking place at the airport, it happens on the plane. And then they say, we don't need a plot. Let's just have fun. And yeah, like the plot, there's, there's this terrible plot. The idea is great, but what carries this movie is just the complete detachment for reality to have some fun. Nicolas Cage has so many one-liners in this movie. That was a surprise. Everything from, why'd you have to put the bunny out of the... Why didn't you... Have, why couldn't you put the bunny in the box? That's the line. And uh, I'm going to show you that God is real. Like, his, his lies and his accent was bizarre. And the, the action was great, but then... Like, John Malkovich had one of the most bizarre, over-the-top death scenes I've ever seen. I, You know, he gets attached to it. He gets stabbed in the ankle, and then he gets launched through a window after being on a fire truck, electrocuted, and then decapitated by a construction equipment. This is <laughs> not a horror movie. This is just a goofy 90s action movie. It's objectively a really bad movie, but I wouldn't change a thing about it. It's so much fun. Turn your brain off. And I kind of miss that. Pretty much only Michael Bay. Pretty much Michael Bay is the only person making movies like this anymore. It's kind of sad, actually. Steve, you're the big, uh, you're the expert in the Nick Cage lover. Well, I, 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 first, I think it's a disservice to call this just a Nicolas Cage movie. 
because it's Nicolas Cage, it's John Cusack, it's John Malkovich, it's Cole Meany, Michael true. T. Willi- Michael T. Williamson, Ving Rhames, Dave Chappelle, Steve Buscemi, Danny Trejo. I mean, it's it's an ensemble like this movie works on the fact that there's so many great actors and they're utilized doing what makes them iconic malkovich is doing what makes him iconic especially coming off of in the line of fire and everything ving rame same thing i mean john cusack that that uh he's growing out of the baby face and now he's kind of the lawman he's you know he's agent larkin it's there's just so much to this movie that makes it a lot of fun it makes it infinitely rewatchable and yeah, all those action set pieces, it, it just screams great mid 90s action. And I love it. I really do. All right. You want to catch it? You can. Disney Plus, Con Air next week. We'll pick another topic. We'll pick, you'll pick the movie. We will watch it. It's the Shift AV Club, stevestebbing.ca uh, for his blog and shiftheads.ca. He likes to post some ideas up on the group there as well. Thanks so much, Steve. Have a great weekend. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.